choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 297 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Introduction. As the 1970s began, NASA was already feeling the heat regarding funding for lunar missions. While Apollo 13 was considered by many to be NASA's finest hour, in real life, the future of the Apollo program itself was in serious doubt. There was much debate among politicians, scientists, and the press about the future of Apollo. As a result, on January 4, 1970, NASA canceled the Apollo 20 moon mission. Decisions were also made that there would be no new expensive space programs, especially not in the area of manned spaceflight. There would be no money spent on any effort linked to the goal of sending humans to Mars. By the summer of 1970, NASA's goal of a space station and reusable space shuttle was coming under fire in the Senate, where Walter Mondale said, quote, I believe it would be unconscionable to embark on a project of such staggering cost when many of our citizens are malnourished when our rivers and lakes are polluted, and when our cities and rural areas are dying. End quote. Mondale asked, quote, What are our values? What do we think is more important? End quote. Despite this and other outcries, Congress approved the NASA budget by a slim margin at the end of July. The next day, Thomas Paine surprised his colleagues at NASA by resigning as administrator to take a management job in industry. He would leave to his successor the coming battles of support, not from Congress, but from President Richard Nixon. But it was already clear that Nixon had rejected the vision proposed by the Space Task Group. By September, only the space shuttle had any chance of being approved, and that was still uncertain at best. On September 2nd, Apollo 18 and Apollo 19 were canceled. According to presidential advisor John Ehrlichman, inflation and other priorities were more important. The budget wasn't big enough to do everything NASA wanted. Furthermore, Nixon was unwilling to pay for a Mars effort that would not bear political fruit until after he left office. But Apollo was another matter. After Apollo 13, some of Nixon's advisors, wary that a space disaster would do him political harm, urged Nixon to cancel the rest of the moon missions. But he resisted. According to Ehrlichman, the moon program held magic for Nixon for one reason. He liked heroes. 
To him, the astronauts represented the best the country could produce. It was good for the nation, Nixon believed, to have heroes. With only four more Apollo missions planned, there were still constant rumors that they might be canceled in favor of spending money on other projects. NASA had plans for several missions to a still-in-the-works space station called Skylab and a reusable space shuttle, so money could be saved by flying fewer missions to the moon. NASA officials had to make tough choices. To say that Apollo 14 had something to prove was an understatement. In every conversation with Apollo scientist Chris Kraft stressed that these remaining missions, 14 through 17, were their last chances in the decade to explore the moon. So they would make the remaining missions as aggressive as possible. Each would go to a different and increasingly more interesting place on the moon, and scientists put together a bigger and better package of experiments to be sent up and left on the moon. NASA also made operational changes to give science every opportunity. Of course, the Apollo Command and Service Module had to undergo extensive redesigns due to the Apollo 13 disaster. More details on that later. The Apollo 14 crew would also consult closely with the Apollo 13 crew following their return. The Apollo 14 crew were constantly aware that if their mission failed, if they had to turn back, it was probably the end of the Apollo program. Command Module Pilot Mitchell said, quote, There was no way NASA could stand two failures in a row. End quote. The Apollo 14 crew knew there was a heavy mantle on their shoulders to make sure they got it right. So Apollo 14 definitely had something to prove. May 5th, 1961. Freedom 7. The United States took the first small step on its journey to the moon. America's first man in space, Alan Shepard, rode the Mercury capsule. Lifted to 116 miles by the Redstone rocket's 78,000 pounds of thrust. Ten years later, the launch vehicle is Saturn V, with a thrust of seven and a half million pounds. On January 31st, 1971, the crew of Apollo 14 would leave Earth on their mission to the moon. The man who began our first decade of manned spaceflight would command the mission that would close that decade, Alan Shepard. With him, Stuart Rusa, who would orbit the moon alone while Shepard and Edgar Mitchell explored its surface. Their destination, a rugged area of lunar highlands called Fra Mauro. Apollo 13, aborted as it neared the moon, had been unable to land at this site. Now, we were trying again. But why Fra Mauro? What happened to the moon during its first billion years, a period erased on Earth? How do the Earth and moon differ in overall composition? By visiting Fra Mauro, we hope to sample the very bedrock of the moon, material very different from that so far collected, material perhaps dating back to the beginning of the solar system. 
How can you think of the soil being 4.5 billion years old when igneous rocks, which presumably underlie it, are only 3.5 or 3.7 billion years old? This, I suppose, will be dramatically refuted or confirmed uh, at the Apollo 14 mission when they actually visit Fermi. Most of the activity is associated with one place on the moon, and we have tentatively located that place in or near the crater Fermi. Apollo 14 was the sixth United States manned flight to the moon and fourth Apollo mission with an objective of landing men on the moon. The Apollo 14 lunar module was planned to land in the hilly upland region north of the Framaro crater for a stay of about 33 hours, during which time the landing crew was to lead the spacecraft twice to set up scientific experiments on the lunar surface and to continue geological explorations. Apollo 14 Prime crew selected for this mission were Spacecraft Commander Alan B. Shepard, Command Module Pilot Stuart A. Rusa, and Lunar Module Pilot Edgar D. Mitchell. At the time, Shepard was a Navy Captain, Rusa an Air Force Major, and Mitchell a Navy commander. The Apollo 14 backup crewmen were U.S. Navy Captain Eugene A. Cernan as the commander, U.S. Navy commander Ronald E. Evans as the command module pilot, and United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Joe H. Engel as the lunar module pilot. If the mission succeeded, Shepard would become the oldest person to walk on the moon at the age of 47. The only space experience any of the crew had was Shepard's 15-minute suborbital flight. During their two moonwalks, Shepard and Mitchell were expected to set up a series of experiments, including the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, ALSEP. Apollo 14's ALSEP included the Passive Seismic Experiment for Long-Term Measurement of Lunar Seismic Events the active seismic experiment for relaying to Earth data on the lunar crust, the suprathermal ion detector and cold cathode ion gauge experiments for measuring ion flux, density, and energy in the lunar environment, and the charged particle lunar environment experiment for measuring energy of solar protons and electrons reaching the moon. There were also additional experiments not included in the ALSEP array, such as the portable magnetometer for measuring variations in the lunar magnetic field, and a laser beam reflector similar to the one left by Apollo 11 for long-term observation measurements of Earth-Moon distance and motion relationships. The crew was also to conduct extensive geological surveys of the area around the landing site. Lunar material brought back from the Framaro Formation were expected to yield information on the early history of the Moon, the Earth, and the Solar System. While the commander and lunar module pilot were exploring the Framaro area, the command module pilot would be carrying out several orbital science tasks in lunar orbit above, including photography of dim light phenomena and candidate landing sites. 
The Apollo 14 flight profile was planned to follow those flown by Apollo 11 and 12, but with two major exceptions. Lunar orbit insertion burn number two was combined with descent orbit insertion and the docked spacecraft would be placed into a 10 by 58 nautical mile lunar orbit by the service module's propulsion system. Lunar module propellant would be conserved by combining these maneuvers and by using the service module engine to provide 15 seconds of additional hover time during landing. Also, additional tracking time in the descent orbit would provide more accurate position and velocity data for use in landing. The other flight profile changes would be in the lunar orbit rendezvous. Many of the intermediate maneuvers leading up to rendezvous and docking after the lunar module ascent stage lift off from the moon would be omitted and rendezvous would take place shortly before the end of the first revolution after ascent. The landing site selected for Apollo 14 was located at 3.65 south latitude and 17.47 west longitude, about 30 miles north of the Fromaro Crater, the same site selected for the aborted Apollo 13 mission. This hilly region was designated the Fra Mauro Formation. It is a widespread geological area covering large portions of the lunar surface around Mare Imbrium, the Sea of Rains. The 700-mile-wide Mare Imbrium is the largest recognizable impact structure on the moon and is thought to have been formed by a major impact of a huge mass colliding with the moon during the period when the Earth and the planets were forming. The Fra Mauro formation is believed to be made up of an ejecta blanket thrown out by that impact. The area is characterized by ridges a few hundred feet high which radiate from the Imbrium basin separated by undulating valleys. The ejecta blanket is now buried by younger rubble and lunar soil churned up by more recent meteorite impacts and possibly moonquakes. From Morrow, debris may have come from as deep as 100 miles below the original lunar crust, and it was hoped that return samples would show when the Imbrium Basin was formed and helped to establish the age and physical-slash-chemical nature of pre-impact materials from deep in the crust. It is theorized that Framaro rocks will predate the Apollo 11 rocks and the Apollo 12 rocks to a period near the original age of the moon. A recent impact near the landing point formed Cone Crater, nearly 1,000 feet across and 250 feet deep, with large blocks of original embryum material around the crater rim. Shepard and Mitchell will climb Cone Crater's gently sloping outer wall to photograph the crater's interior and chip samples from the boulders around the edge. The Framaro formation became more interesting to scientists when the Apollo 12 seismometer at Surveyor Crater 
110 miles to the west, relayed to Earth signals of monthly moonquakes, believed to have originated in the Fromaro crater as the moon passed through its perigee. The Fromaro crater and surrounding formation take their names from a 15th century Italian monk and mapmaker who, in 1457, mapped the then-known Mediterranean world with surprising accuracy. To document the mission, Apollo 14 would carry two color and one black-and-white television cameras. One of the color cameras was planned to be used for command module cabin interiors, Earth, Moon telecast, and out-the-window pictures. The other color camera was stowed in the lunar module descent stage from where it could view the astronaut's initial egress to the lunar surface and later would be deployed on a tripod to transmit a real-time picture of the two periods of lunar surface EVAs. The two color TV cameras were identical except for additional thermal protection on the lunar surface camera. They were built by Westinghouse Electric Corp. Aerospace Division. The color TV cameras weighed 12 pounds and were fitted with zoom lenses for wide-angle or close-up fields of view. The command module camera was fitted with a 3-inch monitor for framing and focusing. The lunar surface color camera included 100 feet of cable. The backup black-and-white lunar surface TV camera, also built by Westinghouse, was the same type of unit used in the first manned lunar landing in Apollo 11. During the two lunar surface EVA periods, Shepard would be recognizable by red stripes around the elbows and knees of his pressure suit. Since the near-catastrophic Apollo 13 mission, several changes had to be made to the vehicles. Three major changes were made to the S-2 stage to help prevent unusually high oscillations, also known as POGO. A helium gas accumulator was installed in the liquid oxygen line of the center engine, a backup cutoff device for this engine, and a simplified two-position propellant utilization valve on each of the five J-2 engines was installed. The accumulator was supposed to lower the frequency of the center engine liquid oxygen line to prevent unusually high oscillations, such as were recorded during Apollo 13, and caused an early shutdown of the S-2's center engine, although the launch vehicle met all flight objectives. The accumulator was a reservoir or cavity filled with helium gas that was a dampener for fluid pressure oscillations in the engine's liquid oxygen line. It lowered the resonant frequency of the center engine's liquid oxygen line so that its vibrations would not couple with the vibrations of the thrust structure and engines. This was to prevent the three systems from oscillating in rhythm. The backup cutoff device would shut down the center engine in the unlikely event of pogo instability resulting from an accumulator failure and prevent excessive vibrations of the beam support of the center engine. 
The J2 valve controls the propellant mixture ratio to the engine, providing high thrust when needed during the first part of the burn when the stage is the heaviest and providing lower thrust during the end of the burn for more efficiency. The redesigned pneumatically actuated two-position valve replaced a motor-driven servo-controlled valve and depended only on an actuation command from the vehicle instrument unit rather than complicated stage electronics. The next set of changes concerned the command and service modules. Following the aborted Apollo 13 lunar landing mission in April 1970, the Apollo 13 Review Board recommended changes to the command and service modules aimed at enhancing the spacecraft's ability to return a crew safely to Earth in case of an emergency. The Apollo 13 abort was caused by a short circuit and wiring overheating in one of the service module cryogenic oxygen tanks. This caused a tank rupture and loss of the prime oxygen supply for cabin pressurization, breathing, and oxygen reactant for the fuel cells. The incident occurred about two-thirds of the way to the moon. Since the service module propulsion system could not be assumed to be undamaged, the lunar module propulsion was used for the balance of the mission. The lunar module was also used as the lifeboat for its oxygen, battery, and water supplies. The major changes to the command service module included adding a third cryogenic oxygen tank installed in a heretofore empty bay of the service module, addition of an auxiliary battery in the service module as a backup in case of fuel cell failure, removal of destratification fans in the cryogenic oxygen tanks, and removal of thermostat switches from the oxygen tank heater circuits. Provision was made for stowage of an emergency 5-gallon supply of drinking water in the command module. The additional third oxygen tank was installed in service module sector 1 on the opposite side of the spacecraft from the other two tanks. An isolation valve allowed the third tank to be isolated from the fuel cells and from the other tanks in an emergency and to feed only the command module environmental control system. Internal oxygen tank wiring was now enclosed in stainless steel conduit instead of the Teflon insulation previously used, and a third heater element was added to each tank. These heaters could be turned on one, two, or three at a time instead of two heaters on or off as in earlier tanks. A sensor was installed to read the heater assembly temperature and the bulk temperature sensor was relocated to improve its accuracy. Onboard and telemetered readouts for both sensors was added. The oxygen tank quantity gauge probe was changed from aluminum to stainless steel, and all previously soldered joints were replaced with brazed joints. The auxiliary battery installed in service module sector 4 was a 400 amp hour silver oxide zinc non-chargeable type weighing 135 pounds. The battery was identical to the four lunar module descent stage batteries. 
The emergency command module water supply consists of five one-gallon plastic bags wrapped in beta cloth and packaged in a stowage bag together with fill hose, valves, and drinking nozzle. The stowage bag was kept in a locker on the command module aft bulkhead. In some emergencies, powering down caused low temperatures and freezing of the water in the command module storage tank. Before freezing occurred, the bags would be filled. Prior to entry, any water in the emergency water supply would be dumped overboard through the waste management system. In conclusion, Apollo 14 would be the last of the so-called H missions, meaning precision landings with two-day stays on the moon and two lunar EVAs. The flight was scheduled to begin on Sunday, January 31, 1971 at 4.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The lunar landing was scheduled for February 5th, and if all went well, the astronauts might even have a little time for some golf before leaving the moon. Salutations from Kansas. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 297 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 14 Introduction. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 126 are now available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I want to credit my sources for this episode. The Apollo 14 Press Kit, NASA Science Solar System Exploration, Smoke Jumper Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, and Flight by Chris Kraft. Well, as many of you know, we are counting down to the completion of 300 episodes. We are now at T-3. This is a huge deal for the podcast. I did not expect to do this many episodes back in early 2013 when I started the podcast. Of course, we will have a celebration, including the Tang Ceremony, when I complete episode 300. But I also want to do something else. I thought of another way to celebrate. We could have a little contest. Here's what I was thinking. To enter, email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your favorite episode of the podcast. I'm not talking about a series of episodes, such as the Apollo 11 series. I'm talking about an individual episode that you like, and also tell me why you liked it. We will draw five entries from those who participate, and they will win a new prize no one has ever seen before. It is a custom 3-inch by 3-inch static cling of the Space Rocket History logo patch. 
It sticks to surfaces such as glass. It is not magnetic. The deadline for entries will be before I record episode 300, so you have a few weeks. So just send me an email of your favorite episode and tell me why you liked it. Hopefully, we'll read some of these emails on the podcast during episode 300. So go ahead, send it in. It'll be fun. Now, a couple of episode afterthoughts. In researching for this episode, I came across something in Chris Kraft's book that I wanted to share. Kraft said in his book that if he had known it would take this much time to send men back to the moon, he would have fought to get Apollo 18 through 20 back into the schedule. And he believes Gilruth, Lowe, Payne, and all the rest would have fought as well. Quoting from the book, quote, None of us thought that America would turn into a nation of quitters and lose its will to lead an outward-bound manned exploration of our solar system. That just wasn't possible, end quote. Now, Kraft doesn't really mince words. <laughs> he just tells you what he thinks, and that is what he thought. Another interesting thing that maybe made me uh, stop and think, if Apollo 14 would have been a failure, would that have ended the Apollo missions? Ed Mitchell seemed to think so, but I don't know. There would have been a lot of hardware that was left in various stages of completion if they shut down everything, but I really don't know. What do you think? Okay, the pictures for this week's episode are available on the website, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here, you may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-funded. Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. April is a taxing month for the podcast, and I'm assuming it's because people have to send in money for their taxes. So, believe it or not... April is usually the single lowest month for support in the year. I know during the summer we have the dog days. Now, that lasts a little bit longer time. But during the month of April, that seems to be the lowest amount of money we receive for podcast support. So keep that in mind. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate, as well as they are entered in the drawing. We were pleased to receive four contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Craig W. donated at the Apollo level. Jason W. donated at the Apollo level. Robert W. from Pennsylvania donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. And Michael S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. We are at 218 Patreons now with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 307 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of the year. For the 307 of you who have already donated in 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH selected James Peden. James, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, 
Tell me your address. I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 298 posted by next Thursday. T-minus three until episode 300. So long for now.